you're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Welcome uh, to Peak Community. I typically don't do the welcome. Terry does it. So I'm going to completely mess this up. So I know we're going to learn one of the lessons we're going to learn today is about grace from Tim. So this will be one of those, those things. So folks who are new to the community who are joining in, uh, we try to do, we're doing about two to three events almost a week. But once a month, I try to bring in somebody that I'm either reading their book or just inspired by something they're doing and just want to share more of that with the community. So today we have Tim Elmore. Uh, some of you probably have heard Tim's uh, work probably six months ago or something like that. Tim, you and I chatted on a live uh, where we talked about just different generations and how they work and work like Gen Z to Gen Y. So it's a lot of really interesting thing. And I remember, Daryl, you probably were there on it where we we're talking about how do you lead a millennial versus how do you lead somebody who's a boomer and how does all that work? So we're going to go into some of that if, if time permits today. But Tim, he's an author of 37 books. Is that, is that almost there, Tim? No. All right. No, that's Tim right. is the author of, so, so I'm going to embarrass you for a minute, and then we'll jump into it. He's the author of 37 books, almost a book a year in the last 37 years, and has written a tremendous amount of, amount of books on leadership in general. He's, he's really well known for habitudes. This is something that he does with the organization. He's the CEO of Growing Leaders. I believe you guys are... Uh, helping 3 million or more kids today in schools to, to become growing leaders by teaching the wow. principles of habitudes, which again, it's really great habits with amazing attitudes with, through picture formation and things. So really a lot of good stuff. And he just launched a book yesterday. This is literally yesterday. And the book is called The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership. And by like we are in the time of a lot of paradoxes right now. So we're going to jump in. We're not going to go through all eight of them, but we will go through a few of them. But let's just start, Tim, as we welcome you. You know, thanks again tremendously for taking the time because I know you're back to back today. We're going to spend like really 40 minutes, uh, do Q&A, just dropping your questions if you got uh, along the way. But just really give us a premise for why this book and why now this might be interesting for everybody to listen in. Okay, sure. Well, I certainly don't claim to be the guru out there on leadership. I uh, have worked for John Maxwell for 20 years, but I was always the mentee along the way, not the mentor. But Sangram, you and I talked about this when we got coffee. I was in a green room before a conference, oh, I guess a few years ago. And there were 16 leaders back there all getting ready to speak, all of them CEOs. And I decided to turn it into a focus group. And I asked the question, do you all think leading today is harder than it was when you first learned to lead. And I expected to get a mixed review of some answers, but every single one of them said, absolutely harder today. One of them said 110%, you know? And I, when I pushed back and I said, wouldn't you think it'd be harder, you know, back in the day when you didn't know much about leadership, everybody still stuck to their guns. And so that sent me on a search. I thought, why is it that leading today is harder? Well, we won't go through everything, Sangra, but a few things I dug up are almost intuitive, but it's just, Amazing when you think about them. First of all, we are leading a more educated team member than ever before. 
Uh, Gen Z is more educated than millennials, who is more educated than Gen X, who's more educated than the boomers, who are more educated than their parents. So, you know, you get an armchair quarterback sometimes. Anybody ever had an armchair quarterback on your team, second guessing every single thing you've got going on? They have a higher level of emotion when they come to the team. Here's what I mean by that. Sangram, when I started my career, the typical mantra for a boss was leave your personal problems at the door. Let's get our work done. You know, it was very utilitarian. Today, the mantra is bring your whole selves to work. And I love that. But you all know bringing your whole self to work means <laughs> you're bringing emotion and baggage and, you know, all kinds of things. I think higher expectations today, because we're at higher exposure, we've got a smartphone and I'm exposed to all the dirt on everyone, even leaders, maybe you. Uh, and then lastly, this is going to sound like a grandpa saying, pardon me, but I think people come with a higher level sense of entitlement. We feel entitled to perks and benefits more than years ago. So all of that collectively doesn't make anybody wicked. It just means, wow, I'm going to have to really be on my game to not have these people quit. And there is a great resignation going on. So anyway, I'm, I'm trying to address what are the social emotional skills we need to not only maintain good team members, but to have them thrive. I know you're hitting on the pulse over here. So folks, drop in the chat. And if you want to just jump in the conversation, jump in, because this is supposed to be very much for a small group, having conversations, learning through it. And as you uncover these paradoxes, and, and, and Terry, and from the post, if you want to just drop in the eight paradoxes in the chat so people can, can just get a feel for it, I think it'd be really interesting to, to just pick one or two of them. Yeah, uh, there's a, yeah. There's a couple of things that Tim that I heard TK, my, our CEO at, uh, at Terminus, he, he always says that there, the truth, two things can be true at the same time. And it took me a while to really wrap my brain around is like, how can you have two, how can two things be true at the same time? And he would say it all the time. He still says yeah. it's like, yeah, this is, yeah, we, yeah. We, you know, in a quarter, like we didn't beat the quarter, but we had the best thing that happened. Like, how can it be like, you know, because you know, yeah. some of the yeah. salespeople are thinking, how is it? And then, but we had the biggest deals and the logos and the biggest retention rate. So it's a better quarter. So two things could be same. And the leaders on here yeah. are like marketing the leaders. And I think what you're phrasing and giving almost a vocabulary, like, well, that's the paradox of life. That's the paradox of business in it. So if you could just jump into the whole, the great resignation, and also in the opening of the book, you all talked about in 2020 was also the great resignation year at that time from a CEO level, jump into that and we can get into the paradoxes in a second. Well, if you all are reading current trends in business, there is a thing going on called the great resignation. It was actually a term coined by a Texas A&M prof way back prophetically in 2019. But this year in April, May, and June, 11.5 million employees quit their jobs. And for some, it was called the pink slip revenge. So many had gotten laid off during the pandemic in 2020. It's like, now they're overworked because we have fewer employees wanting to work at, you know, they're, they're getting the gig on the side. And so I think we're facing both an employee resignation, but Sangram, as you mentioned, there's a CEO resignation thing going on. The first quarter of 2020, loads of Fortune 500 CEOs just, I mean, it almost seemed like what's in the water right now? The CEO of Disney, the CEO of Hulu, the CEO of MGM, the CEO of Uber Eats, the CEO of Harley Davidson. It was crazy. So in the book, I list all this. I just think People are, even fe- are either feeling like, I don't know if I'm up to this, or they really learn the emotional intelligence and the social intelligence skill sets 
that make us balance this either or world. One last thought real quick. Don't we live in an either or world right now? We are so polarized. It's left or right, progressive or conservative. And I'm thinking the answer is not an extreme, probably. It's balancing a couple of things where you really are able to connect with everybody on that team because your wisdom allows you to balance two seemingly ironic and paradoxical realities. Yeah, it's one of those reasons why in my book, on the cover of my book, there is a quote from Jeffrey Moore who talked about, great, this book is awesome. And there's a quote that most of you guys know from Christopher Lockhead saying, I hate this book. Because of that, it's like, you know, we need to have a world where we can have these conversations without just always flipping out on other people or or saying that, all right, you're wrong, so get out of my face. Like that's not the world that we want to create or live. So let's jump into one of the paradoxes that okay. that actually caught me by surprise. And I was, again, took time for me to, to really read the story and understand it. The one of it is about having a bold vision and blind spot. How can you be a visionary and also have blind spot? And how can you leverage both? How is that? T- tell us, walk us into like, well, how should people think about it? Okay. Yeah, this one really does seem contradictory. I think everybody on this on this call today would would agree that leaders can't lead without a vision. You've got to have a target to hit, a goal up in the future, something you see that is a preferred tomorrow. At the same time, every effective leader I know moves toward that vision. And along the way, they'll usually say more than once, if I knew then what I know now, I would have never started this thing. You know, I <laughs> hallelujah, I didn't know what was going on, you know, when I tried this or that or the other. So Sangam, you know this, what I think makes this book fun is I have a case study for every one of these paradoxes. And my case study for this one is Sarah Blakely, the founder and CEO of Spanx. So she creates this industry, shapewear. And, you know, this is just weird. It's not pantyhose. It's not a girdle. It's shapewear. What's up with this, you know? But when she finds a manufacturer to make them, she's now faced with a dilemma. How do I distribute this? Mm. And she sets up a a meeting with an executive at Neiman Marcus department stores, flies over, has a 10 minute block of time. The first five minutes Sangram, she realizes I'm getting nowhere. You know, this lady's heard 12 pitches already today. I'm not getting anywhere. So she stands up five minutes into the meeting and says, would you follow me? And the lady says, I beg your pardon. She says, would you follow me into the restroom, please? And so the two of them, this is so weird. They go into the restroom and ladies, you'll appreciate this. She tries on the Spanx right there in front of her. And the, and the Neiman Marcus executive goes, sold, you know. So Neiman Marcus decided to beta test this in about a dozen stores. Sarah very wisely calls all of her friends that live in those cities and says, I'm sending you money. Buy up all the, all the Spanx. Well, it takes off. Here's where the paradox comes in. Sarah is later speaking at a conference. And in a Q&A session, some person in the audience says, in fact, I think it was a marketing person said, how did you get noticed in a very crowded trade show where there's a thousand exhibits, blah, 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 blah. And Sarah leaned in and went, I beg your pardon, trade show? I never went to a trade show. And she later said, it was my very blind spot that I didn't know that was protocol. I just did what intuition told me. Our world is changing too fast to just follow protocol. We've got to maintain rookie smarts. And that's what this is really about. How do you have a vision, but maintain rookie smarts by having mentors in other industries speaking into your life? That keeps us leveraging the blind spot as well as the vision. I love that. I wonder if anybody has a story similar to that they want to quickly share. 
as we jump into it, because I feel the same thing. Like I'm, I'm not a marketer, but like it just, I happen to be in marketing, but I don't have a marketing degree or any of that stuff. And so when we started Terminus, we said, we're going to create our own conference, but our conference is not going to be about us. It will be an industry conference yeah. because we were trying to build a category. So that's how we went about it. Like later, if I knew uh, all the things and everything, because I've never run actual event, actual booth, all that stuff. <laughs> oh my God. I don't think I would have ever chosen to actually put an event together, the amount of work it takes to do it. Uh, but that ended up becoming one of the best things we did yeah. because it set us on a, on a different path. Sangram, one thing I love about you is you're not afraid to try the bizarre. And I mean that as a compliment. I really do. I think that's the world we're living in now. In fact, I think we're just in a very crowded space if all we're doing is trying to do a little bit better what everybody else is doing. It's that blue ocean strategy. We're in a red ocean, red from the blood of our competition, rather than a blue ocean where we create a whole new way of doing something. And that's what you've done, I think. Hey, Tim, a quick question on that. Yeah. Do you think there's a lesson there for us as leaders when we're putting job descriptions out? I see so often, you know, must have 15 years of experience yeah. Yeah. in this exact thing, right? And I think it leads to the same old thinking. Yeah, it does. You're right. So I think there's a balance here. The answer is in the middle again. I think two things real quick. One, I think we do need to learn if they don't have direct experience in this job, do they have something like it where they can show me, not just tell me they've done it? So that would be number one. But number two, we've completely shifted our job descriptions to outcome-based rather than functions. Because I want to say to a new employee, however you can get to this goal, be as creative as you can. What I want is the goal, not that you did the way I did it in 2003. So maybe you've already done that, but I really think that's the key. Give them a, you know what? It's one of our habitudes, Sangram. It's called clean windows. When you say the words clean windows, is that, is clean an adjective or verb? Are you saying I want the windows clean, however you want to do it. I want you to end up with clean windows. Or are you saying, I want you to clean the windows and here's seven steps I want you to take. That's, I think, no longer helpful. So anyway, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's my thought. Yep. I'm going to jump into one more over here. And then this is because there's like so many. There's there's one that I wanted to jump in, but I don't know if you'll have that much time around confidence and humility. I feel like it it kind of blends into, I mean, internally at, at our company, we called having humble confidence, just know what yeah. you know, uh, don't be arrogant, don't be a jerk, yes. but but have confidence in what you do and how you put yourself together. Uh, but I'm curious if you could double click on it. I love the story you have in the stubborn and open-mindedness. How can oh, yeah. you be stubborn, which I feel <laughs> I'm extremely stubborn uh, in some of those areas. Um, and, and at the same time, open-minded. And the way I read that before, I mean, every time I read these, I actually tried to think what I, what, what it means to me before I read the story. Yeah. I love that you have, for each one of them, you have a clear story that, that really allows you to have a picture. Then you have a clear, almost steps to like how you can think about it and how can you can apply yeah. it. So it, it kind of frames it for everybody. So tell us the story of how stubbornness and open-mindedness both can be leveraged by leaders. Great question. First of all, everybody ought to know in this call that I am the president of the Sangram Vajri fan club. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, Sangram, I think you do this really well. I really do. You and I have gotten to know each other and had coffee together. I think you do this really well. So you could be my case study on this one. But um, in the book, I talk about Truett Cathy. Many of you know Truett was the founder of Chick-fil-A. You may or may not know he had just one restaurant for 10 years kind of tweaking the recipe in more ways than one. Not just the chicken, but 
the values that how we're going to do this, how we're not going to do this closed on Sunday. We never discount our chicken sandwich, but we'll give it to you for free. It's just, he is so, so stubborn and open-minded. Here's what I discovered as I interviewed. Well, as I interviewed Truett way, way back in the day before he passed away, I got to go to his 90th birthday party. It was so much fun. But then I interviewed Tim Disopolis, Mark Miller, Dan Cathy, his son. When it came to people loving his people, and when it came to his core values or principles, he was stubborn. Everything else, open-minded. So let me illustrate. The open-minded part was so cool. When he opened up the Dwarf House in 1946, that was his first restaurant that served way more than chicken. Here's how he started the chicken sandwich. There was a vendor that was supplying Delta Airlines with chicken patties for their flights. But one batch of chicken patties were way too large for the tray on the airplane. So that had a bunch left over. So Truett heard about it, called the guy over to a dwarf house, which is right next to the airport, and said, would you sell me those for a discount? Truett's always looking for a good discount. So he sold him a bunch of chicken. That gave him hundreds of chicken patties to beta test different recipes. Bottom line, he's given away chickens, chicken patties, chicken, fried chicken this, fried chicken that. He comes up with the chicken sandwich. Remember their phrase, we didn't invent the chicken, just the chicken sandwich? With two pickles, a buttered toasted bun, the people said, this is it. Bam. So yeah. the open-mindedness was he saw a good deal, bought some chicken, beta tested until he started this brand that now, I mean, it's the leading. McDonald's is now copying Chick-fil-A. Am I right about that? Everybody's copying Chick-fil-A. So that would be one. Here's where he's stubborn. You all know when you think of Chick-fil-A, at least when it comes to fast food restaurants, they're unique in that they're closed on Sunday. For many fast food restaurants, gang, that's the number one sales day of the week. I mean, people go, you know, after church, whatever, they're going to get a, you know, a hamburger or whatever. Well, to it said, Sunday is a day of rest. I want people with their families in worship. I don't care where you do it or who you worship. Just get, don't do it here. You're not working for me. When Truett would find from time to time, one of his operators open on Sunday, like he found one of his operators open on Sunday in Tennessee. He drove up to Tennessee, fired him on the spot, just letting go right there on the spot. Now, here's this guy that loves people and will work to keep his people. But if you crossed a core value line, it wasn't, well, let's just talk about it. Bam. Now, can I tell you one more quick story? I'm yeah. sorry, I'm monopolizing this. I loved, I fell in love with Troy Kathy again, just hearing these stories. Dan told me when he was, when Dan was 17, he was working for his dad at the original Dwarf House. They heard noises up on the roof of the Dwarf House one day, like weird noises. And Dan, he said, my dad told me, Dan, get a ladder, climb up on the roof. We need to find out what's up there. Well, Dan got a ladder out as a 17-year-old kid climbed up on the roof. And you all know what he found? He found a whole bunch of beer cans. And everybody knew it was Charlie. Charlie was the night manager that was kind of, well, he was, he was an alcoholic. Yeah, and yeah. he'd drink beer outside the parking lot, then throw him up on the roof thinking nobody would find him. Well, Dan told me as I climbed down the ladder that day, I thought to myself, there goes Charlie. <laughs> He's out of here, you know. But Truett finds out, walks in, puts his arm around Charlie and says, Charlie, let's go to AA together. And Truett walks into the AA process until he's sober. Charlie finished his career at Chick-fil-A because Truett wouldn't let him go. Now, if he crossed the line of Corvette, it's just, it was so fun to see why Chick-fil-A is such a great brand. Anyway, I'll stop there. 
Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, folks, again, jump in if you have thoughts on questions or commentary on it. Because I think about this as one. This, if we stopped the conversation right now, I think everybody can take like rest of the time thinking about it and how do you apply it in your own business and leadership. But when I hear that story, I think about like there are negotiables and there are some non-negotiables yeah. in life, yes. right? Yeah. And I think if I'm making a note for myself is like, I don't think I have spent enough time thinking about it. What mm. are my negotiables and what are non-negotiable? And probably the non-negotiables are a couple, like really a couple of things. Yes. That's right. right. Like because that's not a long list. And but we, once you're clear, and typically those will be the values, then everything else is open. I, I remember reading uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, one of his, you know, one of my fun things to do is to read companies filing documents like their S1 filings or their yearly. I just find it fun to read those. They're like like sometimes better than books because they talk about it. It helps you with understanding their philosophy. So I've read once, like just sitting down, like all the 20 years of Jeff Bezos letter mm. to his shareholders. It's like two, three pages. I read those letters. And in one of those letters, he talks about the fact that 99% of the decisions that you'll make in life are irreversible. You really don't need to worry wow. about it. You just let the decisions happen and stuff. But there is that 1% decision. There is one thing that is non-reversible. So make sure that you are always thinking about that 1%. Is that decision that I'm about to make, is it 99% part of things that if I'm wrong, what's the big deal? If they're wrong, what's the big deal? But if you get that 1% wrong, you actually take your business, your team, your leadership, yourself down a rabbit hole. I wonder if that's kind of aligns with more of these. I think so. In in fact, if a business, if a purely business professor were to look at what Truett did, he would say, well, by closing on Sunday, that wasn't just a spiritual thing. He created scarcity. Yeah. People go, I can't go to Chick-fil-A on Saturday. I'm going on Saturday. You know, I mean, and that sounds kind of cheesy. But done that, done actually, that. It's a very wise approach, not just spiritually, but but for business. Anyway, I could go on and on and on. I'm so yeah. sorry I keep taking over the conversation here. Well, this, this is your point. All right. So anybody, anybody has a question or comment, just raise up our unmuted talk and in, in, interject us. I'm going to go to one more over here, which is, Oh my God, this actually gave me, Tim, really heartburn to think about. Like, it's, because it's hard. It's absolutely hard. And I think there, there have been times in our conversations in Big Community, we have said, hey, let's stop the recording because we want to get into this specifically. Mm-hmm. And that meant we were talking about people on the team or stuff yeah, like that yeah. where you don't want yeah. it to be known to the world. So again, everybody, if there's stuff like that, you let us know. But one of those paradoxes that you talk about is that uncommon leaders model both high standards and gracious forgiveness. Yeah. So when wow. I read that, I'm like, well, they're probably working in nonprofit or churches, like that's, <laughs> that's right. not happening in businesses. But then your story obviously, you know, gives, gives a lot more color to it. Uh, yeah. Talk to us about that, how people do that now. Yeah. I actually believe this is just me and I could be wrong. I'm just one guy, but I actually believe this is one of the greatest differentiators for you all in your careers. So as you lead, and if you're not a top-level leader, you'll be one one day, I'm sure, because you're growing right now by attending Sangram's events. I believe we all desire to be that market leader, right? The Jeff Bezos, the Steve Jobs, you know, the the Apple, the Amazon, whatever. We all want to be that. That's the high standard. And I think very few people with genuine sincerity can say, I live by these high standards. However, I think high standards alone almost seem harsh. They almost seem like, gosh, you're expecting too much of me. You know, the average person might go, I don't know if you can do it. But if you couple with that high standard, 
them knowing he or she loves me. They're going to forgive me if I make a mistake. If I attempt to reach that standard, not, not if I'm lazy, but if I attempt to reach that standard and I, and I need forgiveness, I'm going to get that. So my case study on this is none other than Harriet Tubman. You go way back to the 19th century, this young, you know, Terry Tubman from American history. She was that slave who escaped to freedom during the 19th century. And before the Civil War was over, she led hundreds of slaves to freedom in the Underground Railroad. Well, here's how she balanced these two. She clearly had high standards. When she'd collect a band of slaves that she was going to lead up north, she'd say, here's the deal. And I mean, she was a drill sergeant. Bam, bam, bam. It was, it was death, life or death. So she had to have high standards of safety and nobody's talking. And when we're here, shut up, you know, that sort of thing. Along the way, in almost every circle of people that she led to freedom, somebody would want to jet. Somebody would want to quit and say, I can't do this. Now, this is graphic, so fasten your seatbelts. She would hold a gun to their head and say, you're not leaving. If you leave, somebody's going to find you. We're all going to get in trouble. So the high standard was, <laughs> I'm going to, you're out of here. If you, I mean, you're not just out of here. You're out of here. And every time, I believe in my research, every time that person that was going to leave said, okay, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And she would sit down with him and say, you're completely forgiven. She would pray for her captors. She would pray for, I mean, it was, I won't even go into it because I know time is short, but if you can couple both of these, I actually think performance gets better. And let me give you one more picture of this so it's crystal clear. One of our habitudes, habitudes are images that form leadership habits and attitudes, is called the Golden Gate Paradox. And I talk about this in the chapter. In 1933, the Golden Gate Paradox is starting to go up in San Francisco. But because it was the Great Depression, most of the workers were just average people that just needed a job. So they weren't engineers. They were ordinary workers. So they're up on the scaffolding, putting bolts in the metal, and they're just scared to death of falling. You can imagine. So the work slowed way down. A couple people did fall to their death. And then here's what happened. One of the workers talked to Mr. Strauss, who was the foreman, and said, is there any chance you could put a safety net underneath this? Well, Strauss immediately thought of the business angle. It's going to cost $300,000 to do what they're asked me to do. And back then, that was a lot of money. And it's going to slow down the work to stop and put the net in. We're not going to finish on time. We're going to miss the deadline. But alas, he was a high standard, gracious forgiveness guy. Here's what he did. He said, all right, we're going to stop work. We're going to put a net in. Well, here's the irony. He puts the net in and the work speeds up because now the workers are paying attention to success, not survival. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah. yeah. Paying attention to succeeding on the job. They weren't worried about falling or failing. Bingo. If you can erect a safety net of some sort relationally through forgiveness, through, can I say it, through loving your people, just loving your people. I think, I really do. They will go to the mat for you. They'll give you 110% because they know he loves me. She loves me. And that net is down below. I want to give you everything I've got. So I just think this is a social emotional skill. It's deeply spiritual, but I'm yeah. telling you, I think it's the key to success. Yeah, that's that's beautiful, Tim. I'm gonna let Michael. I think you have a you have a question, so feel free to jump in, and then I want to share a story similar to this that might be more related to to the marketing angle of it. Oh, good, good. Cool, yeah, Tim. Thanks, thanks for coming on. This is absolutely incredible. Uh, the question was, in addition to Move, uh, which I think I see a copy over Sangam's shoulder, product yep. at its finest. Uh, and eight paradoxes, which I just uh, downloaded for Audible. 
what three books should marketing leaders today, right now, dig into? Oh, wow. That's great. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Move. Um, <laughs> okay, a couple of thoughts come to my mind. One of them is Jeff Henderson wrote a book called Four. Sangram, have you talked about that book at all? Uh, I mentioned it, and I think, I don't know if you did an event with him in, in the community. Correct me uh, if any of you guys remember it, but if, if not, we probably should get Jeff back yeah, on. He'd be good. He, he's so, he models these paradoxes. He wrote a book called Four that basically says, he's a marketing guy. He basically says, don't just be for your company. That's going to come natural for you to tweet about whatever, you know, you know what I'm saying. But he said, be for your people out there. You know, and Sangren, you could probably say it better than I and use the language that they'll understand. But this book just turns conventional wisdom on its ear where you're so for the people that they go, they reciprocate. They want to be for you. They want to buy your product because you're, you know, that sort of thing. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that would just to give a clear case study of Jeff's work, I mean, he did this for nine years. He built a church here right in Atlanta and Gwinnett and on a billboard. Like we're all marketing. Yeah. We all know we got to have our logo on it. We yeah. got to put our name on it. We get a swag. We got to put a, put stuff on it. You know, that kind of stuff. He put a billboard that literally said for F-O-R. Yeah. That's it. Yep. That's it. He did not even have Gwyn- come to Gwinnett Church or nope. it, none of that stuff. Like literally F-O-R and people knew what that meant. That he, yeah. his whole idea is that we are here for you. So even the t-shirts would say for and you turn around, it will say you. So it was in everything <laughs> we did. And now yeah. he, you know, he was a pastor over there, I think for nine years or so. And he started a four business now and he goes yeah. around teaching business leaders. How do yeah. you build a company that is for the customers, for the employees, yeah. for, you know, for, you know, that that's the thing, because here is a test. Every one of you guys is marketers. You can go and look at your own PR. You may have done a PR yourself. You may have written the PR yourself. <laughs> and somewhere over there, it's going to say, we are the best company in yeah. the world for yeah. X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And we all know that that is a bunch of BS because <laughs> there is a lot of, there are a lot of other companies would say the same exact thing. And his point is that, well, why not actually say, hey, we are not the best company in the world. We are the best company for the world because here's what we do. And, yeah. and that's yeah. a really interesting uh, way of looking at it. And he's obviously done it and pulled it together at Chick-fil-A when he was doing marketing. And obviously, so yeah, it's a great book. Uh, if you guys want, I can get Jeff on to come share that because he is a marketer first and then pastor and then now a business leader. What's really neat, Sangam, is it's actually a paradox. <laughs> he talks more about being for the customer and the paradox is, like I said, they tend to reciprocate. It's you get what you want when you help others get what they want. It's just so strange, but true. And we live in such a me, me, me society. He does turn conventionalism on its ear. One other book that I think is worth talking about is Leadership and Self-Deception. It's not limited to marketers. It's a brilliant book written by the Arbinger Institute. It's a group of psychologists, the Arbinger Institute. And the book is simply called Leadership and Self-Deception. I reread it every year. It's, mm-hmm. And it just smacks me in the face every time I read it. So it's awesome. You know, so one real quick story. And if you have a question, just drop in the chat or just unmute and, and jump in. But one thing was, uh, I think some of you guys know Casey. He's, he's here in Atlanta. He's the CEO of uh, Gravy. And he was just talking about the fact, like a few weeks ago, he was holding a door for somebody that was just walking across the street. And he was holding the door for them. And he, what he observed was all of a sudden that person started to 
run faster towards the door, rowing that yes. somebody's holding the door, get there faster, was a little bit more happier, was a little bit more chirpier. Yeah. And yeah, you know, just, just was really, really like fast. And he's like, gosh, how can we as leaders do that more often where we are quote unquote holding the door for somebody? Because that's like making somebody do more without even paying them more, asking of more yes. of them or doing anything, but really hold the door for somebody out there. And I think, you know, it made me think, and I think he had some comments thinking about like, maybe, maybe, you know, most of you guys here are in leadership roles. Maybe you invite somebody on your team in a leadership meeting that they typically won't get exposure to. Yes, yes. Right? Like yeah. maybe, maybe you actually go and spend a day on like, hey, let's just do like a work day or work lunch or something like that because we're on Zoom and just literally have with somebody two levels down, like skip level and have that conversation. And like stuff that I think we all could think about doing right now on this call where we could just literally take that as one action of opening the door. And it's so paradoxical because you're like, oh, I'm, I'm taking time out of my day to do something. And, and I feel like, well, no, you actually are accelerating the speed of people's trust in you, the people level of interest in driving the business forward in many different ways. So I don't know if Tim that that connects with any of the the areas that you're thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I think we're just in a day where upside down thinking differentiates us. I've mentioned that word before and not only sets us apart, but makes us conventional wisdoms about me and us and our deal and our revenue and our, and I just think, I think that follows when we follow paradoxes. Um, Sanguine, one of the assignments I've given myself as a result of writing this book, The Eight Paradoxes, is I want to speak as if I believe I'm right, but I want to listen as if I believe I'm wrong. Let me say that again. I want to speak as if I believe I'm right, so that's confidence, but I want to listen as if I believe I'm wrong. That's humility, and that's one of the paradoxes. So yeah, I really try to get very, very practical because I know some of these seem a little bit ambiguous or I don't know. I don't know what they said. A little bit fuzzy. Yeah. But, well, um, I'm I'm gonna literally like this is the part where like you know we typically try to keep this to 45 minutes. Want to give everybody 15 minutes back to really think about this and think about how you might use some of these things. But I'm gonna literally create the awkward pause over here for any one of you to just jump in and just think through that process through it with us because that's what this is about. It's not about just listening in. It's actually processing in. And as you make eye contact with me, I will call upon your name too. Well, I just have to say how wonderful this has been. Uh, I really can't. It's just so much good stuff. I'm sitting here thinking about all of the great leadership and, you know, the talk about, you know, morality and stubbornness. And what I keep coming back to in my mind really is, is like the very beginning of the conversation, that part really stuck with me. Like, I feel like that's the thing that's, that I'm feeling the most and I'm seeing the most and I'm talking about the most. And when it comes to both myself in the workplace and hiring, it's just like a constant conversation. So yeah. my thoughts on, on that were really, you know, I'd love to hear any, anything more you have to, to kind of share about the differences between generational work and attitudes and whatnot. And, and coming from my perspective, I feel extremely grateful to have worked at a company that more or less sold internal mobility upselling software that drank their own Kool-Aid and created a great place to work and taught me the value of being able to be extremely dedicated to my work, to growing internally, but also the value of work-life balance 
and knowing when to say yes and no. And I left since left that company and entered into a space that's the exact opposite. And so I'm kind of currently grappling with, you know, that whole attitude differentiation, old school, new school, you know, a lot of times it's entitlement without question. And I'm 100% agreement on like that as an existence. But I think that COVID has had a, you know, without question, massive negative impacts. It's also gifted us with a lot of different ways of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Absolutely. In fact, I'll tell you the term I am hearing from young professionals who are Gen Zers or millennials that I think is part of what you're talking about. I think they, many are perhaps questioning whether they should stay on the job or leave or whatever, because they want to find a pandemic proof job. So many of them did see somebody get a pink slip or maybe several people get a pink slip. Mm -hmm. They thought, I better seize control. Nobody's loyal to me. I don't know if I should be loyal. And so they want to find, and it does make sense, doesn't it? The gig economy makes them want to seek out, maybe I should drive for Uber Eats because at least it's in my control. And as silly as that sounds, I believe this or one secret, it's not the only secret, is these social and emotional skills that make us difficult to leave. We so win the hearts of our people. It's a battle for the hearts of people. And when they say, Amber's going to pour into me, she loves me, she's given me every shot, you know, blah, 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 blah. They feel known. They feel understood. One story that really struck me, Amber, in fact, I'll just share it with you and everybody else can listen in here, that illustrates what I'm talking about. Way back, guys, 60, 70, eight, not 60, 70 or 75 years ago, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was our president and he passed away, 1945. The streets of Washington, D.C. were lined with thousands of people crying at his death. He had been elected to president four times, never happened before or since. But I mean, people just wept. Well, one particular gentleman on the sidewalk as the casket went by just fell to his knees, sobbing. And when a bystander helped him up, he simply said to him, oh, did you know the president? No, said the man, but he knew me. Isn't that beautiful? He knew me. Well, he didn't know him personally, but his leadership was so much, I'm for you. I'll do a fireside chat with you every month, you know, just to let you know how much I believe we're going to make it. That's the spirit behind all of this. And I think you, you nailed it when, with, with what you said, but we've just got to find a way to not just do business as usual. And I think the key is, yeah, confidence, humility, vision and blind spots, gracious forgiveness and high standards. And it's, it's hard, but I think it's worth it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Amber, jumping yeah. in there. So again, as I said, like, I want everybody to take 15. This is not going to be back-to-back meeting. Maybe you, you have one hour block. Don't do go ahead and do another email or anything like that. Really take the next 15 minutes to either write down what are your negotiables and non-negotiables. Like that would be some exercise that I want to do in the next 15 minutes. Maybe there is something that you can think about. How can you, as an executive, as a leader in the organization, hold the door for somebody so that you can create this dynamic of you have a high standard, but you also are extremely gracious. Wow. Um, another one to think about, because this is, this is the part that, um, that really made me think about, like, what are, your, what are you stubborn about and what are you open-minded about? I think wow. just let's spend that 15 minutes on your own time by yourself, write it down, because I think those are the <laughs> things that will distinguish you from other leaders. 
because if you, if you all join in this conversation and everyone just left inspired with no action, I think we missed Tim's point. But if you walked away at noon uh, Eastern today with like, oh, I just picked up one thing and I'm actually doing something about it. I have a list. I know what my non-negotiables are. I know where I can be open-minded. Gosh, we probably made made the most uh, valuable impact of that one hour. Uh, But with that, Tim, is there any takeaways, anything last minute, that last thing that you want to share with the group of these leaders? Wow. You know, I think the last time I was with you months and months ago, we talked a little bit about this idea of read your people before you lead your people. I think the people that are in front of you will kind of determine whether they need confidence or humility. High standards are great. You know what I'm saying? We can't just do, do them all. And sometimes it is a seesaw, a, a balancing act, you know, and then some of you really do both at the same time. I think uh, playing chess rather than checkers, you know, checkers pieces are all alike. Your people are not checkers. They're chess pieces play chess. And that means you read that bishop, you read that queen, you read that knight, and you know what you got to do. And at 10 a.m., they may need humility from you. At 3 p.m., they may need confidence from you. Mm. So um, can I just encourage you to read them before you lead them? And um, yeah, it's been a joy. Sangam, I'm always honored to be with you. I love you, my friend. And thanks for letting me crash the party today. Oh man, it's fantastic. So, and the recording will be, will be all in the link with, uh, with Up in the Juice as you all know. So just look out for that. And again, Tim, as always, just thank you. The book launched yesterday, guys. So this is pretty awesome sneak peek of what it is and where it is right now. So if you guys want to grab a copy, I think it'd be, be fantastic. All right, Tim, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you See y'all later. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.